Shalom Aleichem, Erev Tov. We are learning together in the Agarata Shiu. Let me review the passage of Tammud we're still talking about. I'm going to warn you that today is going to be the beginning of a few installments in the writings of Chief Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Kohen Kuk, the Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi, the first Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi of the land of Israel. who we've discussed extensively in the introduction series of this shiur that you can find on YouTube. Ad sof ha-shmura ha-rishona. Divrei Rabbi Eliezer. The opinion of Rabbi Eliezer was that you are able to say Shema Yisrael every evening from when three stars come out until the end of the first watch. That's the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. What is actually the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer? Let me explain. If somebody were to tell you, what time should I pick you up at your house before Shabbat tomorrow? And you told them, five minutes before candle lighting. Did you answer their question? Right, I, I don't know when candle lighting is. Why don't you just tell me 7.13, come to my house and pick me up. I mean, what's Rabbi what's Ezra doing by teaching us, you can say Shema Yisrael until the end of the first watch. Remember Rashi? He should have told us a discernible time, some practical time, not just a halachic time, but a real time. If his opinion was that the night is made up of three watches, good evening, you're welcome to sit anywhere. Do you have access to the Google Classroom somehow? You do. So we're, I'll tell, announce in just a second which PDF we're opening. If the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer is shalosh mishmarot that there are three watches in the night, meaning if the night is 12 hours, and 12 divided by three is four. Very good. Very good. We can do math. Even I can do the math. And he tells you, you can say Shema Yisrael until the end of the first watch, meaning the end of the first third of the night. So how many hours into the night are you able to say Shema Yisrael? If Rabbi Eliezer is of the opinion that the night is made up of three watches, and you can say Shema until the end of the first one. Four hours. Four hours. So let's say the night started at 8 o'clock. At what time could you say Shema Yisrael? Up until what time could you say Shema Yisrael? If you were Rabbi Eliezer. Pretend 60 minute hours. Midnight. Until midnight, very good. Thank you, Marlene. If the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer was the night is made up of three watches, you should have told us you can say Shema Israel until four hours into the night. You didn't have to tell us some cryptic number of, oh, until the end of the first watch. You could have just said for four hours. And if his opinion was that the night is made up of four watches, meaning 12 divided by four, which is? Yeah, three. Sarah, very good. Sarah's on top of the mat tonight. Four, uh, 12 divided by, by four is three. And if the night starts at eight o'clock, at what time could you say Shema Yisrael according to Rabbi Eliezer? 11. 11 o'clock. Thank you, Marlene. He should have just told us the night is, you can say Shema Israel until three hours into the night. Why did he have to use this time of the end of the first watch? It's not a real time. 
That's like telling your friend, pick me up five minutes before candle lighting. Just tell us a number of hours. What does the Gemara conclude? How many watches does Rabbi believe the night is made up out of? Three. Remember, three. Yes? Lema leolam kasavar shalosh mishmorot This is the Talmud. Rabbi Eliezer is of the opinion that the night is made up of three parts. So what is he teaching us? So why does he use this time of, of, of until the end of the first watch? Anyone remember the answer? What is he teaching us? Not every watch is made up of the same amount of time. Is that true, Marlene? Are we looking at halachic midnight also? Okay, what does halachic midnight affect the watches? Because it could be 8 to 12 or 8 to 11. Okay, so let's say this, though. You're right, Marlene. They're not 60-minute hours. Let's say we have 43-minute hours. How do you get 43-minute hours? How do you determine a Jewish hour? We're so crazy, we have our own measurements of time. How do we do that? From sunrise to sunset. Right, you count from sunrise to sunset how many hours there are. And then you divide that amount of time by 12. And in the summer and in the winter, you're going to have different hours based on how much sunlight there is. Am I correct? So, yes, the Ashmurot do end up being different hours, but they're always going to be the equal amount. Three, three and four are always going to be broken up into equal parts of three. They're equal parts of four. Anyone remember the Gemara's answer? What is Rabbi Yetzel teaching us? By not saying three hours or four hours, and instead saying until the end of the first watch? I thought I was going to do some Rav Kook with you. Should we repeat the Talmud together? You know, in the olden days, if you would go... Yeah, Bo, tell me. One of the opinions was talking about because the, the mirrors of the angels have different watches. Oh, oh very good. Okay, very good. Wait, that's good. So let's go back. What is a watch? What happens at the end of every watch? At the beginning of every watch? What happens? Hashem roars. Okay, Hashem roars. That's what the Bible says later on. That's very good. Merlin, what happens? Well, you're going to say Hashem roars, but tell me about the angels. These watches are changing of the guards in the heavenly sphere. Every part of the night, a different group of angels comes to praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as they change, so too do halachic times change on this earth. So what is Rabbi Eliezer teaching us? I'll read it to you. What is Rabbi Eliezer teaching us? That there are watches in heaven and there are watches on earth, meaning a human being can discern when the changing of the angelic groups happen in heaven. A person can tell when they happen on this earth. The reason why Rabbi Eliezer uses until the end of the first watch is not just to teach you that you have four hours to say Shema, but he's there to teach you that you are also able to realize the changes in heaven on this earth. Harav Kuk, is going to get stuck on this point. This is his point. The ability on earth to tell what is happening in heaven. And today we're only going to begin the writings of Harav Kuk, and we're going to continue this together as we move forward before Rosh So now, if you go back to the Google Classroom, you want to open up the third PDF that's there. The third PDF should say, En Aya Berachot. This is the commentary of Aya. What is Aya? Okay, 
Hebrew, it's a word. It's an acronym. It has a little chupchik. So it has a little... What's telling you this is an acronym? What is the acronym for? This is Rav Kook's commentary on the En Yaakov. Who wrote the En Yaakov? You've been reading his book for a long time. No. No. Oh, I say, say, wait, what do you say, Pam? Close, close. I mean, and how it sounds. With the chet, you got it right. Yes, I'll give you a hint. If he wrote the book En Yaakov, his first name was Yaakov. Let's go that far, okay? Rabbi Yaakov. Okay, someone's going to have to Google this because you're all attending an En Yaakov class, but you don't know who wrote the book. But what's the commentary on the The Kham Huan? Yaakov ibn Habib. Very good. Rabbi Yaakov ibn Habib. Right? Which is probably, Pam, where you got Chagiz from. It sounds close. Habib, Chagiz. And so, Ein Yaakov is written by Rabbi Yaakov ibn Habib. Harav Kuk's commentary on the Ein Yaakov is called En, the same word. Aya. Aya stands for A. Abraham, Ya, Yitzchak, Ha, Hakohen, Kuk. This is his commentary on the Mishnah. So if you open that PDF, you want to scroll down to page 4. You see it says page 4. At the top, there's a cursive Hebrew hey. You see this? Okay. I'm reading from a different edition, so forgive me if there's anything that's slightly different. But it's close enough. Halakuk spends the first line just quoting the section of Talmud we just read together. Three watches, four watches. And then Halakuk says, on the second line, a few words in, Ra'iti lehavin bina bidivrei chachamim zan. I saw it fit to look intelligently into the words of our rabbis of blessed memory. I want to understand what is really the argument here. Our rabbis are arguing whether the night is broken up into three parts. The night is broken up into four parts. Let me ask you a question. Who really cares? Why are our rabbis spending time debating how many hours the same 12-hour night is broken up into? What difference does it make? What, or let's say what difference. Difference it makes because there are laws. Clearly, until it, for Rabbi Eliezer, you can only say Shema Yisrael until the end of the first watch. But what are they actually arguing about? Why would some say three and some say four? What is happening in the Talmud here that our rabbis feel that this is so important that they need to argue? And then Alf Kuka adds in parentheses here something very special. Afapi, even though she'ikarei hadevarim, that the principles here, givohim me'od, are very lofty. Velo eda bahem be'oni adma. And I, in my, not humility, but in my poverty of intellect, meaning, with my inferior intellect, says Rav Kuk, I don't understand them completely. Who is Rav Kuk? He's the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Palestine before we had a state of Israel. Anyone know anything about how he learned? Anyone know any stories about his limu Torah? His scholarship of Torah? I once read a story. Rabbi Isra Zalman Meltzer, Alav Shalom, was a big Ashkenazi rabbi in the Itz Chaim Yeshiva in Jerusalem. He said that when he was getting bored in his studies and he felt like he didn't have any motivation to learn, they would go run to Rav Kuk's house. Him and another friend whose name is slipping me was also a famous Chacham. 
And Rav Isher Zalman Meltzer said they would run together to the home of Rav Kuk, and they wanted to be inspired by his learning. So what did they do? Instead of knocking on the door and bothering him, they would crouch down and take a peek through the keyhole. You know, today you don't have such a thing, but old keys, they had a little hole through the door. And they, I know it sounds a little stalkerish, but they were his students. They would sneak into the outside of the house and they would watch through the doorway the passion with which he learned Torah. Then they would run back and, and be inspired to learn Torah. Harav Kuk, I heard about him that when he was the chief rabbi of Yafo, Tel Aviv, Yafo, his practice was to finish the entire Talmud. How long does it take a person? If you read one page every day, one page of Talmud every day could easily take you an hour a day. Yeah? If you study it properly. I don't know how these people do five-minute Talmud a day. I don't know how that works. If you do real Talmud, and without studying commentaries, and you sit and you want to understand what's written there, Let's say give yourself an hour a day. Half an hour for one side of the page, half an hour for the other side of the page. If you do that every single day without missing a Shabbat and not a Friday night and not a holiday and not anything, how long will it take you to finish the entire Talmud? A little over seven years. Let's say seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. Haraf Kuk Anav Shalom when he was the rabbi of Tel Aviv Yafo, he would study the entire Talmud. Every 30 days, he finished the whole Talmud. Every month, he finished the whole Talmud. And every month, he finished the whole Talmud. And that's how. Harav Kuk studied Torah. Talmud is not the only thing he studied. I heard something beautiful. I can repeat it. From Harav Uri Sharki. Sharki, I don't know how they say it. Harav Sharki is a famous student of the student of Harav Kuk, student of the son of Harav Kuk. And he was mentioning that you hear in the world about Batei Midrash, Jewish schools of thought, that are anti-Zionistic. You hear a lot about that. Open the news, go visit a yeshiva, go visit your local synagogue. Most likely your rabbi or those people come from there. He said the only people who could be students of Torah, people say, oh, maybe they forgot about the Ramban that said it's a mitzvah to conquer the land of Israel. Maybe they got, no, it's none of that. He said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is clearly a Zionist. You read his Torah, and it's obvious that all HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from the Jewish people, go back home. Go to, go to the land of Israel. Go to the land where I will show you. Go build, everything is about the land. You read the Nevi'im, the Kituvim, all about the exile and return to the land. Exile and return to the land. Over and over in every prophecy of our prophets. The God of the Tanakh is a Zionist. And if a person would never study Mishnah or Talmud, most likely, they would be Zionists. But if there's a group of Jews who only study Talmud, Jews who only study Talmud, probably have never met the God who loves the land of Israel. And most likely, they become anti-Zionists. The rabbis of the Talmud assumed that before you would study the text of the Talmud, you would know the whole Tanakh. Why would you study Talmud without knowing Tanakh? Tanakh is the foundation, not the Talmud. They assumed you knew what you were supposed to know. And so that when you come to study the Talmud, you already have everything you need to know. So somebody got upset at Arav Shachi and said, what about all these schools? They don't study Chumash with the commentary of Rashi? So exactly he said what they do. They study Chumash with the commentary of Rashi. Rashi intended for you to study Chumash just with the Chumash before you study the Chumash with the commentary of Rashi. When Rashi wrote his commentary, he assumed that he was talking to people who actually read and comprehended the text before they started reading his commentary. So yeah, you probably don't have anybody who learns Chumash. They learn the Torah, but according to, and according to, and according to. But not the actual Torah. Harav Kuk is telling you, these matters are so lofty, and I, the humble one, am too intellectually challenged to understand exactly what our rabbis were talking about. Im nonetheless, I lean 
on the compassion, the kindness of my Creator. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu should bless me with discerning judgment. To be able to comprehend even a little bit. I pray that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will allow me to understand even a little bit of what they are trying to say. Meaning, Hav Kuk says, even if you think that you understand what I'm saying, I only scratch the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more below the surface that I don't know and I can't share with you. And if he didn't know, then you should know exactly how we feel. And he said, maybe it's a good place to start based on our logical faculties. In, in the realm of logic. What exactly is the purpose of the angel singing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? And where does that fit into the principles of Jewish faith? What difference does it make to us? What's the value of angels praising the creator of the universe? What do we care? The first watch, second watch, a third watch, what does it have to do with us? Let's try to logically understand this concept of singing to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and what it has to do with us. And only afterwards, we can begin to explain only when we first understand the purpose of these watches, why do the angels sing, can we then properly understand is the night made up of three watches or is the night made up of four watches, why is that argument relevant? We know they're arguing about how many watches, but we don't even understand what those watches are for us to understand why exactly they're arguing about them. We find in the Merkava, in the chariot of Yechezkel the prophet. Can someone tell me anything about the Merkava? Shalom Alechem. Can someone tell me anything about the Merkava? Mainly um, Yeshayahu, who both had visions of this image that was supposed to represent like God's movement and action and glory and stuff. Absolutely. Um, Ovadia, could you look for me on this table? Is there an old blue book? It's an old blue edition. It's just one volume. I'm not here. Also, the other side. Rambam talks about it in the Yom Kippur. Of course. And, uh, as Muslim Merkabah, the hidden teachings that the, of, uh, are to be taught one-on-one. The quote-unquote mystical teachings. The mystical, the Zev said a good. Quote-unquote. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to answer of Cook's question already. Yes? I'm trying first to understand the question. Before I give an answer, I want to understand the question. It could be what you're saying is a good answer. I'm trying to think if I could teach this without having to go down a rabbit's hole that I can't come back from. And the reason is because tonight we have Salichot to the end of class. So I don't want to start something and not finish. The Rambam tells us that all of these things, understanding he has a whole chapter, the second chapter of Yisodei Torah, and the first one also, 
to know that there's a creator, to know how the creator works, to know. The Rambam, by the way, doesn't tell you that you should believe in a creator. Why not? The Rambam says, Leda, you have to know that there is a primal cause. Why does the Rambam say you have to know and not to believe? Don't tell me some cheap tagline about belief versus knowledge. Don't, don't do it. Not tonight. What? What is the commandment of knowing? To know the Creator. It's not to believe in a Creator. Belief in Hashem is not the same thing as knowledge of Hashem. Tell me how it's different. Well, that's what separates us from other religions, like quote-unquote other faiths, is that every, everything else is based on faith in a Creator. We have to know with our logical minds, with our intellects, what Hashem is, in order to understand how to serve and how to pray to a Creator. If I were to throw the question back at everybody here, could you tell me who is Hashem? What is Hashem? Don't try it. Just don't do it. You're going to mess up. I don't want you to try. You believe in Hashem. Do you know Hashem? Is knowing personal? Interesting. Okay, you know your mom? You knew your mom? Yes. You know what she looked like? Yes. You know what she liked to wear? Yes. You know what she liked to eat? Yes. You know what kind of things you did to make her mad? <laughs> you know how she would react to things that you did? Yes. You understood what made her happy and yes. sad? Yes, her look. Okay. Look. Let me ask you all those things about a Kadosh Baruch You know what he looks like? Do you know what he wears? Do you know what he does? Do you know what he likes? Do you know how he reacts? Do you know how he feels? Do you know why he does what he does? Do you know what his favorite? Do you know? Don't, don't, and then I'm asking you now, stop. Don't be Jewish. Stop. I'm sick and tired of Orthodox Jews. Stop. I think, I stop. think, we, I think we know him by like, the way we communicate with each other, similar to the way we communicate with The way we treat each other, parents, children. I don't want to be sick of you too. Harav Kapach, when he taught this Rambam to his students, he would always say, we are not commanded to believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the definition of Avodah Zarah, idol worship. Let me explain. Everybody has in their mind an image of what is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm not talking about a body and a form. Everyone has their own relationship with their own HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So you have created a God in your image, and now you pray to him and you do mitzvot for him. Or you, and you, so you're worshiping an idol like anybody else in the world is worshiping an idol. You created a God and now you worship him. So what are you so special? HaKadosh Baruch commands to know me. Know me the way you can describe your mother. Know me. That doesn't take a minute of work. It doesn't, it's not a seminar you sign up for in Israel for the weekend. This is a lifetime journey of knowledge. Not believe, knowledge of who is the creator. Why is the creator? You can spend your whole life on this journey. And the Rambam goes through two chapters asking all kinds of questions, giving all kinds of answers. The Rambam says here at the end of the Halachot, The things that I told you right now in the last two chapters, they're like a drop in the ocean. From what really needs to be explained on this matter. And the explanation of all these attributes and character traits and everything else, descriptions of the Creator. That is what is referred to in rabbinic literature as the chariot, 
the chariot of Yechezkel, is the knowledge of the creator of the universe. Ma'aseh Merkava, the who is, what is, the creator of the universe. Tzivuch HaChamim HaRishonim, and therefore our early sages commanded us, that it's forbidden to speak publicly about these matters. Only to one person at a time. It has to be a wise person. And I am not going to give you now all the halachic requirements this person has to be. Somebody who can reach conclusions with their own logic. They have their logical faculties are working. And the rabbi then gives the student the outline, the basic points, bullet points of everything about a Kadosh Baruch And he gives him only a little hint as to how to fill in the blanks between these bullet points. And this is a student who's so wise and so healthy of mind and so educated that when you give them the outline, they're able to write the book. They use your bullet points and they understand everything you were hinting. They completely got the hint. Completely. And these things are very, very deep. So Rav Kook used the word very, very lofty. The Rambam uses the word very, very deep. And not every human being is capable of tolerating this type of rigor that it takes to really know the Creator. Okay, this is already not important. We're about to talk about the Maaseh Merkava. Sorry, Zev. Talkah between science and religion is really a false one because really what the Torah is a divine science. There are definite logical rules and dimensions to it in terms of the knowledge of the Creator. It's very, very different. Most there's no way you could separate religion and Most things that people try pitting against each other are false. You know, Sina Kahane in his book, Ideas. I mean, I can send you the introduction. He's allowed me to share it with the people in the Shiviti. You have Zev, I know, but the people in the Shiviti Bermidlash, if they if they haven't bought the book yet, and I highly recommend the books, um the least introduction. Every time you see this deca spiritual versus physical, religious versus science, versus all of these terms that people pit against each other, there's a reason why the world needs these, these breakdowns. The world needs the separation. It's, sometimes it keeps certain people sane, but it's all false. It's not real. It's not true. It's not what our Chachamim believed in when they looked at the world. But I got so distracted from where I'm supposed to be right now in my shiu. Let me try to bring it back. Harav Kuk is now telling you about Ma'aseh Merkava. What is Ma'aseh Merkava? Some of you will say Kabbalah. Okay, listen. I'm not from the camp that believes the Rambam was a Kabbalist. I'm not. I'm just, I'm not. You can be a Kabbalist. You just can't convince me the Rambam was a Kabbalist. That's all. You understand the difference? The Mikubalim believe that their study of Kabbalah is the Ma'aseh Merkava. So for the Rambam, Ma'asem Kava is this, and the Mekubalim are also trying to accomplish this in a very different way, with perhaps very different conclusions. But they're all aimed at knowing the creator of the universe. Now, Uziel Vadia, I want to apologize earlier. I want to just say that Uziel Vadia is a Mekubal. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. See his face? He's like, don't accuse me of that. Yes. The Kabbalists very much believe that if we are the creator and the image of the creator, then the best way to understand the creator would be to truly understand the human being. And by deep understanding, not superficial, deep understanding of humanity, you can begin. If, if I'm a reflection of the creator, 
and you really figure out that reflection, you can begin to understand a little bit about the creator of the universe. So there is, an, what you said, you may not have thought that that's what you were saying, and maybe that's not at all what you were saying, but I'll say that maybe you're a mekuba, who knows? You'll find out one day. For right now, for right now, Halaf Huk is telling us about Ma'asam al-Kaba. So our first job, our first job is really to try to figure out, before we understand why the watch is made up in three or four, we have to figure out why on earth are the angels singing, what is it important to us, what is happening up above. And here is what Halaf Huk writes. We have found in the vision of Yechezkel, Pam, now can you say it again? Because now that I gave the background of the Merkava, can you just explain one more time? Yechezkel, what is going on? What is the Merkava here? He's describing. He was describing this image that we saw in prophecy that's supposed to be like a, a Okay, so when Yechezkel is picturing to us the divine chariot, the Ma'asem al-Kaba, it's really intense, deep lessons as to who is the creator, what is the creator, what is going on here. So no, this is this topic of Ma'asem al-Kaba is really, it's at the forefront of much of what the deeper thinkers of the Jewish people try to understand. There's a famous story, I saw it in the autobiography of Rabbi Israel Meir Lau. Rabbi Lau, the father of the current Ashkenazi chief rabbi. I highly recommend his biography in Hebrew, and in English it's called Out of the... It's an amazing book. Someone remember this book in English, what it's called? Out of the... I'll, I'll find it for you. So, Rabbi Lau there writes that when he came to visit as the chief rabbi of Israel, he came to New York and they brought him to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Crown Heights. And he went into the Lubavitcher Rebbe's office and they were talking and they were talking and talking for many hours. And when they finished their meeting, it was already very late at night. The streets were quiet. It was maybe 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe walked Rabbi Lau out the door or to the door or whatever it was. And then the Rebbe turns to Rabbi Lau and tells him, because the Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't really speak a proper modern Hebrew, but he asked Rabbi Lau, what's going to be with the Ma'asem Merkava? What's going to be about the divine chariot? And Rabbi Lau said he started getting very pressured here. He's the chief rabbi of Israel. He's supposed to be the, you know, the, the, he's the chief rabbi. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who is some Hasidic master, is asking him, no, Rabbi Lau, it's 3 o'clock, tell me, tell me the secrets of the universe. Tell what's going to be with the Ma'asem Merkava, the divine chariot? He starts sweating and he starts, I'm not sure, I'm mumbling. And Lubavitcher realized something is wrong because it's not the reaction. And he, he explains to him, Lubavitcher was only asking him, where is his driver? How's he going to get home? Who's the ride? Where's the chariot that's coming to pick him up to take him to his hotel? He just didn't know how to say that in Hebrew. So he said, Merkava, you know, the chariot. How's the chariot going to come get you? And that was a humorous story of Rabbi Lau who thought... He, it's in the book. It's in the book. I'm almost positive I read it in the book. Is this the book? Yeah, Out of the Depths. Thank you, Marlene. That's the book, Out of the Depths. It's worth buying yourself a copy. It's worth it. We have found in this chariot in Yechezkel that there were four faces. The face of an ox. The face of a lion. You guys are familiar with this in Yechezkel? Pnei Nesher, the face of an eagle. Pnei Adam, in the face of a human being. Vafalpi shiyesh binyanim halalu divarei Elohim chayim gevohim v'needarim b'kodesh. Says Rav Kook, and even though these things right now that I'm talking to you about, the chariot and the lions and the eagles and the ox and the, the humans, all of these things are very lofty spiritual concepts. Asher eni kidai ledaber behem which I am not worthy of speaking about, says Arav Kuk. I don't have the right to speak about these secrets in public. 
nonetheless, with the help of the Creator, I will try to speak a little bit. Based on the simple understanding. Nothing deep, nothing too philosophical, nothing Kabbalistic. I just want on a simple level to try to explain to you a little bit of what's going on in the story of the Merkava. Are you ready to learn a little bit? Or we could do this? Okay, says Rav Kook. Kine our rabbis in the Yalkut Shimoni, limdu utanu, they taught us, alpi belohim naaseh chayil, shebizman shisrael osin retzono shel makom, that when the Jewish people fulfill the will of the Creator, mosifin koach bigvura shel ma'ala, that when we do what's right, when we follow the Torah, we give strength to the heavenly sphere. Through our Torah, through our service of the Creator, we are pumping life, energy, if you would like to call it this, into the heavenly spheres. And that which we walk in the path of the Creator, and our clinging to the character traits of the Creator. And our knowledge of the name of the Creator. And so what we add in Ma'ala, everything that we add in our spiritual loftiness, If I can make a complicated matter simple, and by making it simple, I'm actually making it more complicated. When you do a mitzvah, when you learn Torah, you are not just learning Torah for yourself. You are not just observing mitzvot for yourself. Your observance of Torah or mitzvot directly influences the heavenly spheres that are above us. The operating of the heavenly world is dependent on our mitzvot that we do, our Torah that we study, our clinging to the path of the creator of the universe. Now I said I explained it simply. That just creates a whole new world of problems. Why do they need me? That's already you can ask your local chacham. And if we pause for a moment, says Al-Khuk, and we analyze what are the proper character traits the things that are needed in a complete human. Especially to a wholesome human who wants to be a person who follows the path of the Torah of the Creator. Those people are broken up into four categories. There are four things that a person needs to be a wholesome human who is also a Jewish person following the path of the Creator. Here you're thinking you only need 613. And that's complicated. Now he's giving you four. You ready for the four? Aleph, the first one. Hu shlemut ha'avodah b'fo'al l'kayem kol mitzvot Hashem itbarach u'lishamer mikol asher hizir. A complete human who is a Jew is obligated in the first step to observe all the mitzvot. To observe all of the mitzvot and to avoid transgressing all of the averot. Simple, no? Yes? You have to keep the Torah. The first thing you have to do as a Jewish person to observe the Torah. Both the things you have to do and both the things you're not allowed to do. That was simple. What about the second one? The second thing that a person needs is to refine their character. So you observe all of the mitzvot. 
But you're a terrible human being. So you're still missing out on what it means to be a good human and a good Jew. Your obligation is to refine your character and to become more like the one who created you. What do our rabbis tell us? You should walk in the way of Hashem. Our rabbis say, how can you walk in the ways of Hashem? Have you ever seen HaKadosh Baruch before? You know how to walk like HaKadosh Baruch You know how to drink like HaKadosh Baruch You know how to eat like HaKadosh Baruch You don't know. So what does it mean? What is this commandment that I have to walk in the ways of the Creator? What's the answer? What our rabbis say? You walk in His path. Just like He's compassionate, you be compassionate. Just like He is full of kindness, you'll be full of kindness. Just like He visits the sick, so too you should visit the sick. Just like He comforts the mourners, so too you should comfort the mourners, and so on and so forth. We can't actually emulate the Creator, but we can refine our character so that we are more like the character of our Creator. Asher al-pi divrei chazal shamru, based on what our rabbis told us in Masechet Avodah Zarah, Chasidut gedola mikulam. That Chasidut, piety. Don't read Chasidut as in fuzzy hats in New York. That's not Chasidut. Chasidut, piety, gedola mikulam, is the greatest character trait of them all. Midat chesed hi hakolelet kol hamidot hatovot kulan. The character trait of chesed includes in it all of the good character traits in the world. How so? How does piety make you a good person? A rabbi is for a pious person use the word chasid. How do you book What is the connection? Says Rav Kook, Shaharei etzem chasidut nigzar mechesed. The definition of chasidut is someone who is a person of chesed, of kindness. What is the root of the word chasidut? What is the root of the word chasid? Is it a Polish coat in the middle of the summer? Is it stockings, white ones on Shabbat for men and black ones during the week? Is it wearing rubber boots in the middle of August in upstate New York? Is it throwing rocks at passing cars in Yerushalayim? What is chasidut? Chasidut. The definition of chasidut. Look at the root. The root is chesed. What makes you a chasid? When you are a good person. When you do acts of kindness to others. Like the chasid. Who's the chasid? Explains to us in his book, Misilat Sharim, chapter 19. Who's he calling a chasid? Who oh, he's saying the Hasid who wrote in his Misadri? Who's the Hasid? Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutato, the Ramchal. The Ramchal wrote Misadri Sharim. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutato is known as the Hasid. He is the definition of piety, according to Arav Kuk. He makes note of chapter 13, uh, 19. I have 15 minutes with you. Let me take this tangent with you. It's very important. Because I think that many of us have heard the name Chasid, Chasidut, Chasidim. And we have in our minds something totally different from what our rabbis, who were real Chasidim, were teaching us about what it means to be a Chasid. So if you open up Misirat Sharim with me, to chapter 19, I attached a Zoom link, uh, link in, the, in the Google Classroom, in the Zoom invitation. Guys, I don't want to rush this. That's the problem. I don't want to rush this.
Let me do this. We're going to do our Rav Chal next Thursday. Today I'm going to finish with you what Rav Kuk wrote. And then next Thursday we're going to read this, what the Rav Chal wants to teach us about Hasidim. Okay, let me finish Rav Kuk. Let's read. Harav Kuk says, by the little number three, if you have one in your, maybe not. Hashlishi, what is the third type of person? What is the third trait that a person needs to be a shalem, a complete, wholesome Jewish human? Hu shalemut yidiyat ha-Torah ha-Niglet b'chol parateha. It's a person who understands all of the Torah, in all of the detail. What do I mean Torah? I mean all of these halachot, the Torah, the chumash, the mitzvot, all of them in their details. So that practically you should know how to observe all the mitzvot. How is this different than the person who observes the mitzvot? Some of you really understand the depth of it and where it comes from. Very good. There are many people who observe mitzvot. Let's try this. For you who were not here in the class last week, those who were here don't answer. Why do you dip your bread into salt on Shabbat? As if you were here last week, don't answer. Why do you dip your bread into salt on Shabbat? Okay, let me ask you. Because the Shabbat table is um, like the, the, um, the temple, um, and all of the offerings, the sacrifices in the temple had to be uh, offered with salt. And so the Shabbat table is another um, representation of the, the altar. But Aviva, welcome to the Shur. I don't think we've actually officially met each other, so thank you for joining us. Uh, this, say Marlene, say it again. Give it flavor. Right. Now, what Aviva said is not wrong. There are ideas behind the salt at the table. The ideas. Like the uh, yeah, you are saying the same thing. Marlene is the only one who's saying the right answer, though. Marlene, can you say it again? To give the bread flavor. According to Jewish law, the reason you dip your bread in salt is because the bread that you buy, not like the bread you buy. I was last week uh, in El Cajon. Why do I enjoy being in El Cajon? I had to go there for a meeting. What was I there? I figured, wow, El Cajon has a, a large Muslim population. I'm able to go into one of these bakeries and buy some bread in honor of Shabbat, some pitot, some whatever else is over there. So I came in and you buy these pitot and they smell delicious until you taste them. And how do they taste? Like absolutely nothing. They taste like flour and water. There is not salt in the dough and there's no eggs in the dough and there's definitely no sugar in the dough and there's no, none of that stuff is in the dough. When you buy bread, our rabbi's bread, not your bread. I see people with the bread they buy for Shabbat. The same bread you buy for Shabbat is the same cake you serve at the end of the meal, only they put a different label. They write egg challah on it. Braided challah on it, they write. What's the difference? I was in New York and I saw, true story, I was at a Shabbat table and they brought me challah. What was the challah? Chocolate chip marshmallow fluff challah. That's a cake? That's not a challah. Just because you braided it to look like some Catholic German bread from the 1300s doesn't mean now that it's Jewish bread. According to halakha, bread has to be bread. You add too many things to the bread, it now becomes a cake. And you can't use it for your Shabbat meal. My grandmother's bread, first off, wasn't always braided, for sure not, was flour and water. No eggs, no other things. Just flour and water. So you go to the Arabs, you buy their bread, and what do they offer you? What do they offer you with their bread? 
in Jerusalem. Here they didn't offer anything. Some zatar, some spice to dip your bread into. According to Halakha, our rabbi said, you're about to eat bread. You want to make a blessing on something that tastes good. So you should dip your bread into something that tastes good. What's the most accessible thing you have? Salt. Dip your bread into salt. What does the Shulchan Aruch say? We learned this last year. What happens if you like your bread with no salt? You just like flour and water bread. Do you have to dip your bread into salt? No. No. What, what if the bread already has flavor? Do you have to dip your bread into salt? No. No. If your bread has salt, you definitely don't have to dip it into salt. Now, I'm not talking here Kabbalah, I'm not talking, I'm just halakha, Jewish law. So why do we dip our bread into salt? To give the bread flavor. Why don't you dip your bread into salt the whole week? You eat a sandwich, yes? You dip your sandwich into salt? In the morning you wake up, toast and cream cheese, you, you dip your toast into salt? You go somewhere where SeaWorld with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You dip your peanut butter and jelly sandwich into salt? You find yourself in a, in a Jewish city and you buy yourself some Chalav Yisrael pizza. You dip your pizza into salt? You get a hamburger at a restaurant. You dip your hamburger bun into You guys understand what I'm telling you? None of you dip your bread into salt because you all know, whether you know or not, that you don't have to dip your bread into salt according to Halakha. So why on Shabbat do you dip your bread into salt? Like Zeh uh, said. A minhag of what? You don't do it the whole week. Why do you do it on Shabbat? You don't do your minhag six days out of the week. You enjoy? I have a good challah, my wife baked, and now you're covered in salt. You think I like it? But it didn't. The law is you have to do it every day of the week. Some people do it all the time. Who dips their pizza into salt? Not pizza, but the bread. Why is pizza different than the chala you have in Shabbat? Let me answer your question. Because every person is from the first category and not from the third category. Everybody does the things that they're supposed to do, but nobody understands a blessed thing about why they're doing what they do. And how long do you think you could be an intelligent Jewish person when you do things, you have no idea what you're doing? How long can you do it? So why do I have bread on my Shabbat table? Because if one more ignoramus comes to my Shabbat table and complains that I don't dip my bread into salt, I'm going to dip them into the salt. So I put bread, because it's better instead of dealing with all the ignoramuses, I, I have a salt over there, and if you want to dip your piece, you can dip your piece into salt. I don't dip my bread into salt. Why do I have to dip my bread? I don't do it on Monday. Why would I do it on Shabbat? You know, how many, you, you know how many halakhot I can do like this for you? Every halakha you think you know what you're doing, you think you know what you're doing. You do step number one. Number three? Yes. That's because we have a Judaism that's based on what people see other people do or what other people tell them they should do. And one time I was watching for bread and we had some guests over from another part of town and literally their eyes popped out when I said the bracha over the till like they've done it before washing my hands. They've never ever seen it before and they were shocked. That's a great example. It's a great example. It's what I told you the other week, that Judaism is the least known religion. Even the Jewish people have never seen Judaism before. And when you walk around with them and you start doing Jewish things, all they see is, what are you doing? You're crazy. This, of course, this, this is Judaism. What you're doing, I don't know what it is. This is Torah. says of Kuk. Number one is good. Observance is important. But there's another level. What about actually knowing why you do the things that you do? By the way, there's a purpose in that. I'll tell you. All of you who may be offended that I slighted Kabbalistic customs. Harav Kuk says, Not only will you then know how to do the mitzvot properly, you will fix your soul by decorating yourself 
with the decorations of the Torah. You will transform your soul by understanding why you do the things that you do. And then the things that you do are no longer just physical actions. They're actions that use your mind, your heart, your soul. You use all the other parts of your body when you do those mitzvot. All of a sudden you'll find that not just your hands change, your head changes, your whole being changes. The mitzvah becomes a transformational experience because you now understand what you're doing. Category number four. Before I say category number four. So many of you mentioned the mizbeach, the altar, and having salt in the mizbeach, and it's true. Our rabbis tell us that the table is like the altar. And just like the altar also had salt on it all the time, we should have salt on our table all the time. So that answers which question? That answers the question of why you should have salt on the table. It doesn't answer why you dip your bread into salt. That's why they do, we do many amalim, to, to clean the salt from the fingers. To remove the salt. Which salt? I don't dip my bread in salt. So which salt do I have on my fingers? No, no, no. no, no I mean, I mean was when, when the, the salt they, they, they used to use was a really strong salt from, from, from the area, from from the, the, the okay, we're going to leave my Mahawadin for a different day. I'll, I'll, I'll fix what it means for you. Until then, before we adjust my Mahawadin, so there is an idea to have salt on your table. Darizal, for example, was particular to also have Zata on his table. Because Ezov, which is the main ingredient of Zata, was found in the Mizbech also. There are all kinds of ideas, a covenant that was made with salt. In Hebrew, both lechem, bread, and melach, salt, have the same letters. You dip your bread three times. What do the Sephardim think about when they dip their bread into salt? There's a pasuk they think of. Some people mistakenly say it. You shouldn't say it. Adonai, melech. Adonai, malach. Adonai imloch leolam ve'ed. Hashem is king, Hashem was king, Hashem is king. Hashem will be king forever and ever. The name Adonai, Yud and Ahay and Avav and Ahay. How much does it come out to be? In he, what is it? 26. 26. 26. 26 times 3. 78. What is the gematria of bread? Lechem. Let's do it together. Lamed is 30. Chet is 8, Mem is 40, 78. It's the same gematria, and then the Kubalim have something with the number 78, and when you dip bread three times into salt, which is also 78, and you dip the bread, which is 78, into Hashem's name three times, which is 78. Okay, but listen, that's a Mekubalim. That has already nothing to do with the halakha, why we dip our bread into salt. But I just want to say, for those who suggested other ideas, I'm not telling you those ideas don't exist. I'm telling you that's not the legal reason for why we do the things that we do. And it doesn't explain, nobody here yet has an answer for me, why the people who dip their bread on Shabbat don't dip their bread the entire week. Nobody had an answer for me and you're not going to find an answer for me. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to find it. It's the same people who do Maim HaChawanim on Shabbat. The same people who do Maim HaChawanim on Shabbat, but the whole week they don't do Maim HaChawanim. What happened on Shabbat? What happened on Shabbat? The, my favorite is those are the people who think they do my machawanim. What do they do? They bring you a little cup of water, even has little handles, and they pour a little bit of water in their finger here, a little bit of water in their finger here, they start smearing all of that salt of znom, all over their hands. Some of you start washing their face. What did they accomplish with a little drop of water? How, how, where are you supposed to wash your hands when my machawanim? What does Shukhan al say? So where do you wash your hands? Till your knuckles. At the very least. At the very least, your knuckles. So how do you get away pouring a half a drop of water on your fingertips? And you think you do my mechawanim? But that's because all the Jews are living in number one, not in number three. But what happens? You come to a place like I did, and you start talking too loud. And what do they tell you? Oh, it's so controversial. How do you say such controversial things? Which things? The Shulchan Aruch became controversial. 
the Talmud Bavli became controversial, the Babylonian Talmud. How, what happened? Number four we'll have to do next week. But for right now, we did one, two, and three. We're going to take next week the beginning of the Shi'ul to read the writings of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Portuguese Chacham, uh, the Mekubal from Portugal. And then we will get back into Akuk and discuss who is person number four. Thank you so much for learning to with me. For those who want to stick around, we'll be praying Avit in about two minutes, followed by Sirichot, which will take us about 40 minutes. Uh, we'll probably do a little faster Sirichot tonight. And everyone is welcome to stick around or to go home. Thank you so much. Again, this is good.